0: When the Titanic sunk on April 14th, 1912 Its bow had bounced off of an iceberg The whole of the Titanic was not actually pierced by that iceberg It was merely dented, dented enough that those steel pieces were beginning to give way And water was beginning to seep into the front of the ship Now ship architects had designed the Titanic to withstand significant damage to the front and to the rear and even to the middle sections of the boat and still stay afloat. And they had 16 different watertight compartments to assist in keeping this ship that could not be sunk afloat. And each compartment was separated by a high steel wall called a bulkhead. And these bulkheads couldn't be too high or the ship would lose its buoyancy. The ship was designed so that even if four or five of these compartments separated by these bulkheads were were compromised, the buoyancy of this long ship would actually keep it still afloat. So it could hit an iceberg and, and take on damage but still maintain buoyancy. However, when the Titanic actually bounced off the iceberg it did hit, six of these compartments were compromised all at the same time. Water began to flood right at the the bow of the ship and it began to sink the front of the ship lower and lower so that as water came in, it began to spill over the top of the bulkhead's dragging it down until water had compromised all 16 and it sunk 16 different watertight bulkheads no matter how high they were could stop the flood of water when six compartments had been compromised and it led to the death of 1500 people now last week we looked at the church in Pergamum a church that was beginning to be filled with compromise. They had a significant number of people who were faithful in the church who were stemming the the tide and the flood of compromise that was coming in and it kept the church, as it were, afloat. The church we look at today, Thyatira, is a sinking ship. Compromises consume so many areas of the church that the bulkheads that Christ would establish to keep that flood from consuming the ship, they're becoming known more for corruption, giving way to the flood than they are for faithfulness. Ephesus that we studied in the beginning was the Loveless Church, Smyrna. The second church that we looked at was the suffering church. Pergamum that we studied last week was the compromising Church. Thyatira is the corrupting church. In fact, the middle three churches among all seven churches represent the worst of all the churches. The first and the last are representative of one another. They deal with heart issues. The second and the sixth are representative of one another because no condemnation is given to either one of those. But the middle three, these are the worst And there is a descending degree in their compromise and corruption that you begin to see. Where there's compromise in Pergamum, it leads to corruption in Thyatira. And once you get to Sardis, it's known as a church that is dead. A compromised church doesn't have to sink. It can stay afloat. And the situation can be addressed. But if it continues, you can't stop the floodwaters. You can't stop the floodwaters of compromise once it has gone too far. So I want us to think today and next week, because we're going to put this in two parts. I just can't do it. Or I just won't do it. I think that's the better word to use. I want you to think of the various parts of this letter that we're going to look at as if they were bulkheads designed by Christ to keep the flood waters at bay in just a few places because listen, every church is going to have its problems at every point of its history. There's going to be people within it that somewhere, somehow are compromising and it doesn't have to sink the whole thing but if you don't address compromise pretty soon, the floodwaters waters will compromise the whole ship till it's too late so i want us to think of the various aspects of this letter that we'll look at as bulkheads designed to keep the floodwaters at bay so that the ship of the church stays afloat now in this letter that jesus writes to thyatira it provides what we could refer to as seven different bulkheads that are necessary to keep compromise at bay that keep compromise from flooding and corrupting and, uh, and eventually sinking the church. Seven bulkheads necessary to keep compromise from flooding and sinking the church. The first is found in verse 18. It's very similar to what we have seen already as we've been looking at these letters. There's some vision of Christ here. And what is this vision of Christ all about? What is this bulkhead that would keep compromise from flooding the church? You have to consider the true king. You have to consider the true king. Jesus begins to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. Here's another angel dispatched from Christ to deliver the book of Revelation to another church. This one is about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. So we began at Ephesus and went north And we continued north up to Pergamum and now we're going to make a turn to the southeast and beginning to head back down but inland from the Aegean Sea. Thyatira was a city originally established as a shrine to the sun god Tyremnus and later Apollo and it really wasn't viewed as a significant city of any kind of influence But by the time of the Romans, Thyatira was viewed as an important city, though not that necessarily significant socially. It was an important city because it protected Pergamum. Pergamum, if you'll remember, was the capital city of the region of the province. And Thyatira, just to its south, was the city that invading armies would attack first when it was en route to try to take the capital city. So Thyatira became a city that was always being attacked as these invading armies throughout history would make their way to try to overcome the capital. Now when this letter reaches this city in the first century, it had reached its economic and social height It wasn't a city that was plagued by the emperor worship like we saw in Pergamum where every day a Christian's life would be put on the line because every day they were expected to worship the emperor. That kind of emperor worship was not the prevailing idea in the city of Thyatira. But this city was known for what is referred to as the trade guilds. These trade guilds would be like modern day labor unions They'd be organized around a particular area of work and you would join that guild if you did that particular kind of work and that guild would protect you and it would provide for you. And it was a key to any kind of social influence in the culture. In fact, we've seen this kind of alluded to earlier in the Bible in Acts chapter 16. Do you remember the woman named Lydia? In Acts 16 verse 14 It says, there was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. And do you remember what was emphasized about Lydia? She was a seller of purple fabrics. Now, why emphasize that? Well, she was wealthy, but she was likely a part of those trade guilds that were designed from the city of Thyatira. Now, listen, every ancient city had the trade guilds, but Thyatira was known for having more than most cities. Thyatira was defined by these trade guilds. In fact, one commentator says there were guilds for wool workers, linen workers, manufacturers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths, all of these had their own guild. And if you want to be successful, you want to provide for your family, you had to be a member of the guild If you wanted to be ostracized, you wanted to have no influence, you wanted to put your ability to provide for your loved ones on the line, you ostracized yourself from the guilds. Now that becomes problematic for a Christian because every trade guild had its own particular patron god. And these guilds would have, throughout the year, various festivals that would celebrate the god and invite the blessing of the god. And just like you would find throughout the Roman Empire of the first century, Where there was idol worship, there was also immorality connected to it. So they would have these great festivals where they're inviting the blessing of the trade guild god to bless all of their efforts. And if you didn't go to the festival, you were ostracizing yourself from the guild. If you didn't participate in the festival, then you weren't really part of the blessing of the God of that and at all of these festivals they always ended with sexually explicit behavior that went on with everybody you say I just can't fathom that right you can't because in that culture absolutely everything in the culture was attached to some God and morality is not defined like we Christians in our country have defined morality you have to understand. The, the, the general person in Roman first century culture did not view disloyalty to a spouse if you engaged in sexual activities outside of your marriage. That wasn't disloyalty. That was just a part of life. In fact, it wasn't uncommon to have more than one wife or concubines. One Roman writer said, we have wives to have legitimate children and then we have others simply to enjoy. That's how they thought about morality. You have to understand what Christianity brings to the table is an ethic that nobody in the culture then ever, ever could conceive of in fact the body is viewed as unspiritual so what you do with the body has no moral leanings so to engage in this immoral activity that we would call immoral that the Bible would call immoral was simply a way to invite the blessing of the God and why wouldn't you want that? sex was just a biological act were any moral implications. So the culture just lives in light of what will get the gods to make them successful. And you would do whatever is necessary, engage in whatever activity is necessary, so that you were well taken care of and that the gods blessed you. In fact, that's how people designed religion. With all these gods to appeal to one who would bless you in your particular area of life. You understand, no one in first century Roman culture lived as if there was just one God who had an ethic that banned what we would refer to as immorality. Nobody did that. I I don't know if we can actually appreciate how counter-cultural Christianity was in that era. Or perhaps we're beginning to. In light of What kind of bulkhead would withstand the flood of moral compromise that was found in this city? What would that bulkhead look like? You have to keep one king, one God in mind. And as we've been seeing since the beginning, as we studied chapter one, we saw that opening vision of Jesus Christ and the various attributes of Christ celebrated and discussed and John saw them and it drove drove him to his knees. And as we talked about in that opening vision, you and I, we never live higher than our view of God. The higher your view of God, the greater your deeds will be in light of it. The smaller your view of God, you always live up to your view of God. That's why you need a high view of God if you want to stem the flood of cultural compromise, right? When the attributes of Christ have no influence on your conscience, you have no bulkhead to stop the flood of spiritual compromise. So the attributes of God are not just to be studied, they're to be imbibed in such a way that they keep us from compromising with the culture because if we don't have that, we will. So I want you to notice the unique nature of how Jesus presents himself here There's three different characteristics that are put on display And I want us to look at them carefully Who is Jesus here? Well first we could say he's the divine king He's the divine king He's the God king Where do we see that? Well how does he describe himself? To the angel of the church in Thyatira write The son of God the Son of God. Now this is the only time in the whole book of Revelation that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. It's frequent in the Gospel of John to read read of Jesus as referred to as the Son of God, but this is the only time you'll find it here. And where most of the description of Jesus from chapter 1 revolved around his attributes it was assigned in chapter 1 to a title not the son of God but if you remember chapter 1 verse 13 Jesus was like the son of man in chapter 1 verse 13 not the son of God that reference in chapter 1 was likely a reference to Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 Daniel 7 13 and 14 Daniel says I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And that's the very few phrase that is found in chapter 1, one like a son of man. Well, what was true of this son of man in Daniel 7? He came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given, listen to this, what was given to the son of man? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In other words, the Son of Man becomes the greatest human king. That's the Son of Man. Son of Man emphasizes humanity, and Jesus then comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days makes the Son of Man in his humanity the greatest human king of all human kings. And that's how he's displayed. But here... It is not humanity as king that's emphasized. And it is right that Jesus would be the greatest human king. God designed humanity to rule over all the earth as kings. Jesus being the forefront of all of those rulers. But that's not what is emphasized here. The human king. Here, this is not a reference to Daniel 7. This is someone who is a bit different. This is the son of God, the one who represents God, God's Son, the one who is a distinct personality but shares the very nature of God. He's like the Son of Man in his title, that he will have kingship, but this is not humanity as king, this is divinity. As king, This is emphasizing the divine nature of Christ. And in a city like Thyatira that was given over to the trade guilds and every guild had its God and there were so many gods, you concentrate not on each individual God to find blessing or accountability. You look at one God. The one who represents God to us is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. More than likely, this is a reference to Psalm 2. And we're confident that it is a reference to Psalm 2 because at the end of this letter to Thyatira, there is an allusion to Psalm 2. Verses 26 and 27, there's a strong allusion to that. I want you to listen to Psalm 2 because here is the divine king. The king who is God, who comes to rule over all the nations of the earth is emphasized here. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, the Lord. And against his anointed. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron. This is the part that's referred to at the end of the letter to Thyatira. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry with you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled his blessed how blessed are all those who take refuge in him how interesting that in a society marked by people who are constantly trying to seek the blessing of a multitude of gods Jesus says I am the one true divine king you don't look at any of these other idols of the culture You focus on one who is the divine king. Divinity as king is emphasized here. Who's going to be our ultimate judge? The Lord. When you're pressured to cave to the corrupt demands of the culture, you keep one judge, the divine king, in mind. But not only is he represented as the the ultimate true divine king, Notice also, he's represented in this, representing himself to this church in that he sees the truth. This divine king sees the truth. We see it in that phrase, he has eyes like a flame of fire. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 14. The one who was like a son of man, who was reigning as king, coming as king, he had eyes like a flame of fire. We see it here again. We'll see it again in Revelation 19, verse 22. His eyes are a flame of fire. What does that mean? He knows what's true. He knows what's false. He knows what's legitimate, what's illegitimate. He knows our heart. So no matter what we do, he knows what we want. He knows what our motivations are. He looks past the facade of, maybe the Sunday facade, he sees down to the very depths, he knows all of your deeds, all of your actions, there's nothing hidden from his sight, we'll see it emphasized again in verse 23 when he says to this church in Thyatira, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, he has eyes like a flame of fire. His piercing gaze, it consumes all of the external falsehoods and pretenses that we make about ourselves in front of others and exposes what's really inside of us. And how significant that would that be for those in Thyatira? Calling themselves Christians and tempted to save their economic hide, to save their social well-being, to go to work, And to give lip service as it were perhaps to the pagan world while still saying but I'm going to be a follower of God. I know we can't relate to that. I know there's no kind of pressure like that on you. Of course we can. That's why he writes this letter. That's why Jesus presents himself this way. You can say to yourself what I'm doing I don't really believe in. What you do reflects what you believe. So you might believe that you can compromise. But he knows. He sees. He sees behind all of the excuses we make. (laughs) Nothing, friends, nothing. not Not one thought is ever hidden from Christ. He sees the truth. You can't pretend to be an idolater. And a follower of Christ. He knows. He sees the truth. Not only that, he's not just the divine king, it's not just that he sees the truth, but think of this third characteristic in this first bulkhead that should stem the tide of the floods of compromise. A third way he represents himself. He's holy. He's holy. His feet, the text says, his feet are like burnished bronze again we saw that in chapter 1 verse 15 in fact this term for burnished bronze is only used in chapter 1 and here in all of the new testament it's a kind of bronze that has been heated to a fiery glow to remove all of the impurities from it to burn away all of the filth that could accumulate on the feet as he's walking through these churches And it's not only that Christ is unstained by any of our impurities as he walks among us. Think about what happens to us as he walks through us with the feet glowing with fire. He cleanses us too. His walking among us burns away the facade and exposes the true nature of who we are because he walks among us in blazing holiness when he walks among us he actually makes us more like him and that's a helpful reminder to Thyatira and to us his holiness is the standard his holiness does not mix with the culture his holiness does not allow for culture and Christianity to commingle He is the standard. His morality is the only standard. His brilliantly pure, unstained, unstainable walk among us does not compete with other standards. It consumes them. It devours them. It leaves only his own moral standard as he walks among us. Our current success in the world, our ability to provide, are making it through this world and trying to deal with all the compromises around none of that is going to matter when we stand in front of him is it when we think about what defines or who defines what our church consists of we better keep in mind first of all who Jesus is he's the divine king who sees everything that is true and he is absolutely holy and that ought to penetrate our conscience. Wherever we are, whatever's going on in our life. And I, I look out on a crowd like this and, and there's so many different ways that this could be impactful to you because you're intersecting with the culture with so many unique temptations to your situation. And you're gonna have to keep in mind there's really only one God with whom you really have to do. Compromise that bulkhead, the others will start to fall. That's the first. Now a second bulkhead that we find here that keep the floods of compromise from sinking the church into corruption is found in verse 19. Preserve those who are true. Preserve those who are true. When you become a compromiser... Where you're trying to keep one foot with God and one foot in the culture, you begin to not value those who align themselves closely to truth. They become challenging to you. But if you want to keep compromise from defining you, you have to look to intentionally preserve the people who are true. Notice verse 19 I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Well, what are those deeds? your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now, why would you say this to a church so flooded with compromise that they're virtually corrupted? Because at this point, not all hope is lost. Not all hope is lost. They're not the church of the living dead that we'll see in Sardis. There's some truth left. And the one with the eyes flaming like fire, he would know. He would know. And this church needs to look to those and to preserve them. They will be the preserving salt in the church. They will be the preservation of this congregation from being sunk. And he says in the opening part of verse 19, I know your deeds. Now, deeds are going to be a very important emphasis throughout this letter. He knows your deeds at the end of verse 19. Your deeds of late are greater than at first. In verse 22, he's going to reserve tribulation for those who do not repent of Jezebel's deeds. In verse 23, Jesus says he will repay according to your deeds. And in verse 26, those who keep Jesus' deeds will actually find the reward of eternal life. Now deeds are not merely an activity that you would do it's a reference to the whole of your lifestyle it's your lifestyle how you choose to live so Jesus is essentially saying I know your life I know the generalities of your lifestyle I know it and your life is defined by what you do and I think this is a great encouragement to this church they're not too far gone we always know what's in the heart because we see it come out in our actions. So he says, I know your deeds and I know that's where you are. Now I get it. Not all of our actions define the whole of our heart. Paul would affirm in Romans 7, there's times I, I want to do what's right and I'm not. I'm, I'm not doing the things that I, I want to do. He, he says, there's a battle there. I get that. And I, I know also deeds are not how you achieve eternal life, but they do reveal where your heart is. This is Jesus saying, I know the direction of your life. You have a lot of imperfections, but I know the direction. I mean, it's a church. It's a true church. It has not totally compromised. Again, it's not dead. Now, what's defined here as true deeds? If you wanted to look for true deeds, true deeds that reflect a true heart, true deeds that show a true church, what would you look for? Well, you first want to look for true devotion. That's one of those deeds. I know your love. That is, I know your devotion to me. That is your love for me. I know your love. Now, interestingly, Jesus does not define what that love looked like. But they haven't abandoned it. You know, like Ephesus, who had walked away from love. It's not dull like Laodicea. It still has some vibrancy to it. It's still present and it's still true. And I take this to mean what we find love to mean throughout the, the New Testament. It is a love, a love for God that shows itself in a love for others because you can't separate those things. We looked at that when we studied the letter to Ephesus. Love is actually the substance of true devotion. How do you know someone's devoted to you? You see it in their love. How do they love you? And the kind of devotion that God calls for is one that is comprehensive. How are we to love God? With all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. So you need to look to preserve those who possess a true affection for God. Not just emotions, not just drive, not just passion. But look for those who weep over the things that God weeps over. Look for those who rejoice over the things that God rejoices in. Look, at, look for those who discipline them, their life according to what God has revealed in the scriptures. Look for those who sing with zealous engagement according to truth. Not just sing exuberantly. Or just to pattern it after 1 Corinthians 13, do you want to know who loving people are? They're people. The people who love are the people characterized by Christ's Devoted pursuit of patience. Kindness. They reject personal jealousy. They reject all kinds of braggadociousness. They're not arrogant. A loving person is someone who acts appropriately. Not always preoccupied with how everything impacts themselves. Not easily provoked to anger. Loving people don't hold on to past hurts. Loving people don't find sin to be their joy they find deep joy in what God says is true those who are loving they endure under pressure they believe the best not the worst of people they don't give up hope they don't quit on each other that's love that's devotion isn't it it's devotion that's that's a wonderful thing to think of in this church there are people who truly biblically love and they're still there You need to preserve that, encourage them. Does anybody come to your mind in the church when you think about a a truly biblically saturated person full of love? How are you praying for them? How are you encouraging them so that we preserve those kinds of people? But also, if you want to find who's true, you find people who have true conviction, He knows their love and he also knows their faith. They have true conviction. That's what faith is. Faith is conviction. It's an absolute conviction in Jesus as a sufficient source. Their beliefs are defined by, their beliefs are shaped by, their beliefs are driven by and they're held on to by what what they're confident in related to Jesus Christ. What the scriptures have revealed about him. They have faith not just faithfulness, but they believe what is true and that belief is the conviction of their life. And that is really helpful in a church that's on the precipice of compromise. There's still some who have not given up. They hold to the word. True disciples are people who have an accurate, devoted, resolute theological conviction. It's faith that defines them, not country, Faith, not culture. It's faith, not their work. Faith, not their family. It's faith that defines them. The faith of the scriptures, not a brand of church, but scriptural conviction. Who comes to your mind? Who in this church comes to your mind? How have you encouraged them? You've seen them stand. They they don't brag about it, but they stand. They believe How have you encouraged them? They have true love, true devotion. They have true conviction. Another element of those who are true is found in the phrase, I know your service. They have true fellowship. True fellowship. I know your service. Service is the word diakonia in Greek from which we get the term deacon. A deacon is one who is known by his constant and consistent service to the church so that he's Brought to a place where he's recognized by the body in that service. That's a deacon. But diakonia is a word that just refers to all kinds of service, every kind of service. It's the kind of investment that you're willing to give of yourself to the betterment of someone else. How encouraging for Thyatira to hear that there are true servants in their midst. Christ motivated servants are still there and I think this kind of service it's not just picking up the trash here and there where you see it or making sure the lights are fixed it's it's not just doing those deeds it's why you do them you do them because you're trying to benefit everyone else you're trying to help the the larger group you're investing in the people through the service that you give that's real fellowship fellowship and friendship that looks at the relationship of I have something to contribute here that is helpful to you pursuing the Lord that's true service and they have that they also have true endurance it's another mark of what's true that we need to preserve true endurance I know your perseverance Jesus says I know your perseverance How good to know that in a church that's becoming more known for its corruption than its Christianity, there's still some that Jesus knows with his blazing eyes. He knows there are some who won't cave. They're not going to compromise. They're not going to give in. They don't quit, no matter what the pressure. Intense pressure. They go to work and they don't connect themselves to the trade guilds because they know they can't worship another God and they're going to try to make the best they can. Even if it means their ostracization Their love for God, their love for others, their faith in Jesus, their service to others in the name of Jesus means more to them than any other kind of promotion or advancement or acceptance among anyone else around them. That's perseverance. It's perseverance, true endurance. They also have true progress. This is what Jesus knows of them. I know that your deeds of late are greater than at first. I'm so glad to read that in a church like this. Listen, this church, the floodwaters are filling up the bow very quickly. There's no doubt about that. But it's hopeful when Jesus says, I know your progress. You're doing better than you were. True believers grow. They grow. They have spurts of growth at times. It might be several steps back but they're moving forward the direction of their life is always pressing forward in holiness and devotion and love for Christ we're not we're not trying to paint a picture here that church life is the the people who are really stalwarts are the people who never struggle oh I hope that's not the standard I, I love people who struggle because they're fighting aren't they they they're not content with unholiness. They they want to press forward. And people who struggle inch forward. If they keep pushing forward, they'll they'll inch forward. That's good. Encourage that. Does anybody come to mind? As you think through these elements of what com- comprises true the true people of the Church of God. Do, do, are there people that come to mind that you've seen this, maybe in ways that no one else in the church has ever seen or really knows about? And could you drop them a note or a con, a, a text, or, or, or maybe a phone call this week, or just an encouragement after this service? And you walk up to them and say, "I've seen this evidence of God's grace in your life, and I, I thank God for that. It's encouraged me. It's helped me. Preserve that. Look for that." Let that comprise, these characteristics of truth, comprise our membership. That's a bulkhead that will stop the flood of culture from redefining or even sinking the church. Let's look at a third bulkhead that should stem the flood of compromise that leads to corruption. Third, reject those who are false. So you've got to preserve those who are true, but at the same time, you have to reject those who are false. You have to reject those who are false. You see it in verse 20? But, strong term. you got a lot going for you, but stop. I have this against you. What does he have against this church? That you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Here's the real heart of the problem in the church in Thyatira. You know what their problem is? They're too tolerant. They're too tolerant. They love, they serve, they stand strong. It's almost like they lack discernment. So loving, we can get to the point where we won't say no it's the real problem obviously their membership policy is very low Jezebel's joined the church I looked through our membership role I didn't see anyone with the name Jezebel on there their leadership criteria is theologically practically bankrupt because Jezebel's not just a member of the church she's now a church leader I know there can be a kind of intolerance that is unkind, it's unloving, it's fixed on personal preference or personal convictions and there can be that kind of intolerance that's impatient and it's unnecessarily harsh. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is the one that says you're too tolerant. The one who has the eyes of fire, the feet that blaze with purity, he's saying you're too tolerant. Being kind doesn't require us to be theologically spineless. Being patient doesn't mean that we never say no to someone who wants to be a leader or perhaps even a member, but they won't hold to what is true. In other words, we have to be discerning. Yes, we we tolerate levels of immaturity. Aren't you glad? We all have levels of immaturity. I don't care how mature we are, we're still immature because we're not finished. So yes, we tolerate some immaturity as people grow, but we're not tolerating a kind of error that begins to spread and negatively define and impact the rest of the congregation. And that begins at the leadership level begins at the leadership level. Who you choose as leaders, the criteria you use, and the influence that they possess will eventually shape the entire direction of the church. And Thyatira chose Jezebel to be a leader. Not only has she joined the church, they have welcomed her in as a member and they have given her a title or they've at least recognized the title she has given to herself. Now, I'm very confident that whoever this woman was in the church in Thyatira, her real name was not Jezebel. I'm fairly confident in that. I don't think any parent with any any thoughtfulness would name their child Jezebel. Now, maybe if you said, well, I know someone who's done that. I would love to hear the story, but let's not stand up today in our midst, all right? If there is someone named Jezebel, I I don't think you would. This isn't referring to an actual person with the actual name Jezebel. It is an actual person. It's probably a woman, but she's like Jezebel. Just like in the last church, Jesus pointed pointed out those who were connected to Balaam. And Balaam was used as an illustration of people who exist who are doing the same thing. Here's another Old Testament illustration of there's a woman in the church elevated to official formal leadership position who's just like Jezebel in the Old Testament. Now, who is Jezebel biblically? Who is she? Well, you can read about her in 1 Kings chapter 16-21. through 21. I'm not gonna take you through all of that. You can go through and read about her. She was the daughter of a pagan king. The pagan king of the Sidonians, a Phoenician people. And she married the king of Israel. Think about that. The king of Israel who was to singularly reflect the law of God and who was not to intermarry with the other nations of the earth. He married a daughter of an pagan king and he would do that because he wants to get along with the nations around them. That's what kings often would do. It's like a treaty of sorts so that he married a pagan woman from a pagan people. Immediately upon marrying Ahab the king of Israel Jezebel convinced him not to forsake the worship of Yahweh. She didn't disallow the worship of God. She just wanted to add the worship of Baal to it. As the book of Kings says in 1 Kings 21-25, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. It wasn't Jezebel who was carrying out all these acts. It was behind the scenes getting her husband to do it she's one of the most infamous among the most wicked people in the old testament that's why you say the word jezebel everybody feels that now she didn't at first publicly set herself up against the chief as the chief opponent opponent of yahweh but she became that She hunted down and she killed and persecuted any man claiming to be a spokesman for the true God, including the prophet Elijah. She tried to have him killed. She gained power and influence and prominence and preeminence and used it for the spread of paganism and the persecution of those who would truly follow God. She would actually murder anyone who would get in her way to having whatever she desired. There's some interesting illustrations of that as you read through those chapters I mentioned. The reality is as long as Jezebel lived, there was no peace in Israel. She helped to keep Israel under the discipline of God because she kept pushing them towards pagan worship. In fact, her death depicts the justice of God on her. Found in 2 Kings 9, verse 30. Just listen to this. You remember how Jezebel died? I mean, this is how wicked she was. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it and she painted her eyes and adorned her head. She's dressing herself up like a harlot. And she looked out the window and Jehu entered the gate and she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and he said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. And when he came in, he ate and drank. (laughs) That's always interesting, isn't it? And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, and they found nothing more than the skull, and the feet, and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him and he said this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite saying in the property of Jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse uh, of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel so they cannot say this is Jezebel. That's a pretty wicked person to receive that kind of discipline under the hand of God. So Jezebel was one of the worst most wicked individuals of all the wicked people you'll find in the Old Testament so who was Jezebel in Thyatira who was she in Thyatira well like those who were following the teaching of Balaam we would gather from this reference that this was an actual woman in the church and she's referred to as a person not a group of people as an actual individual not an institution a person And she has leadership in the church. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, notice the next phrase, who calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess. She elevates herself and you recognize it. Now listen, this church is worse off than the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum had people who had compromised. Ephesus wouldn't tolerate compromise. Pergamum had a few who compromised. This church tolerates, welcomes, and even affirms that this woman have this title. She called herself this and you tolerate it. Now I want you to see what comprises the falsehoods that have to be rejected. What are the kinds of characteristics that you need to look at that you need to reject in terms of falsehood. First, false leadership. You need to reject false leadership. This is the woman who calls herself a prophetess. The church may not have given her that title, but they've recognized it. She gave it to herself. She wanted it for herself. She wanted a prominent position in leadership. And they gave it to her. Now some suggest here that there's no problem with Jezebel being a woman in leadership, a woman as recognized as a prophet in the church because there are women that you will find in scripture who are denoted by the term a prophetess. Who are they? Deborah in Judges chapter four, verse four is a prophetess. But remind yourself of the context. When Israel had no male leadership, no man would stand up and be what God asked him to be, God rebuked the entire nation by raising up a faithful woman who would actually say what he says. That was Deborah. She was not characteristic of prophets of the day. She was simply one used of God to rebuke them. Miriam was described as a prophetess in Exodus 15:20 20 because she, she composed a prophetic hymn after Israel's victory, she's never described as a prophetess again, she, but she does write this hymn that is divine. In fact, she never exercises this gift again, and she ended up opposing Moses and find herself, found herself leprous because of it. She did not want Moses to be the only leader. She wanted to be the leader. I'm not sure that's the prophetess you want to mimic. Huldah is a prophetess mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 22. And if you read the context of 2 Kings 22, it's at a period of time when no one was living according to the law of God. They didn't even know where the law of God was. So King Josiah finds the law and they begin to read it. And they consult with a woman prophetess because she's the only one who can be found among the entire nation who represents God. She's an exception to the rule. Anna is a prophetess in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. She was in the temple. She was waiting for the Messiah to come. She was given a specific task to point to the Messiah. We know nothing about her life or role or ministry other than she spoke a true word from God, direct revelation from God that this was the Messiah. Philip's daughters were referred to as prophetesses in Acts 21, verse 9. But we actually know nothing about what they did or what role they played in the life of any church. It's simply denoted that way. The church in Corinth had women who were prophesying. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, where Paul instructs women who are prophesying to make sure that they don't deny any kind of outward expression of femininity because it was a problem in Corinth as a city and the church in particular where women were trying to take roles and positions that denied any gender distinctiveness and so they were elevating themselves to the place of prophets and some would say well see there were women prophets in the church in Corinth and Paul doesn't say that they shouldn't do anything well he actually does because when you get to the end of 1 Corinthians 14 he says that the women should not exercise the gift of prophecy in the assembly he directly forbids it. Says they should remain silent. That doesn't mean silent in that they can never say a word when they come into the church building. In the exercise of the gifts publicly, they should not do that. In fact, if you want to point to the six references of women prophets in all of Scripture, that should actually make it clear that they were exceptions was not the general rule out of all those who exercised the gift of prophecy and were referred to as prophets they were exceptions in exceptional cases you combine that with the clear emphatic instruction by Paul that women should not prophesy in the gathered church in 1 Corinthians 14 and they should not exercise the gift of teaching in the assembly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the explicit reference that the men, particularly the elders of the church, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, are to lead the congregation in the public gathering. Knowing what the rest of the Bible says on these issues, you would come away and say, they've established a woman in a leadership position she should not possess. Now, listen, certainly women can teach the Bible, And there are women who teach the Bible very, very well and should teach the Bible well and should know all there is to know about theology and studying and teaching the word because we need that. Titus 2 says they are to teach and particularly they are to give instruction to the other women in the church. Now I won't go into all of the reasons for it but according to Paul in 1 Timothy 2 it goes all the way back to creation as to why God established functionally in the church roles for men and women all the way back to creation in how he established them. And then when the curse came, it started to impact them in those particular roles. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul forbids women to have leadership positions because of the original created order. Jezebel, whoever this woman in Thyatira was, should not have had this position of leadership in the church. And, you know, you always want to watch out for someone who comes with their own title that they want you to recognize them for. That's never really a good sign. You have somebody who shows up and says, I'm the glorious one. I'm the authority. I'm the grand pooh Watch out for those folks. It's a leadership position. But also this church was not only tolerating a false leadership position, they were tolerating false teaching. Not just the position, but the position allowed the instruction. You you see it. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Again, notice she's teaching and leading. She's being recognized as a public teaching leader. And her teaching is leading to immoral behavior and likely connected to false beliefs about God. It's idolatry. She's encouraging them to eat things sacrificed to idols. You say, well, how in the world would she get Christians to do that? Well, remember the trade guilds? She's likely saying to them, it's okay. There's nothing to it. We know there's no other gods but the one God. So go ahead and participate. Go ahead and do what you have to do to preserve yourself. God knows. And that's just the problem. God does know. He does. The same idea was floated in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That church was fraught with it. I mean, everything. If you went to somebody's birthday celebration, it was likely dedicated to a God. If you were eating the birthday cake, it would have been prayed for as dedicated to the God. So do you eat the cake or not? Well, what happens if you have a new Christian who came out of that paganism who went to the birthday party with you and they see you eating the cake and they're like, oh, I thought I repented of that. And so they go back into it and they reject Christianity because... They see you doing what they used to do. You don't want that. But even worse, by the time you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, listen, if you're eating meat sacrificed to an idol, do you understand that you are having fellowship with demons? So if you have somebody in the church say, it's really okay, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you really want to be careful with people who are telling you, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't care about what? Evidently that was kind of the case. So people are engaging in 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 immorality. Maybe they're buying into the false idea, well it's my body, so it's nothing spiritual, so it doesn't God doesn't care what I do with my body. Who knows what that's going to look like in our culture today? Maybe it's the kind of teaching today that causes employees to adopt the moral philosophy of the culture and celebrate it. You have to adopt the recognition, at least in your work environment of homosexual marriages, transgendered pronoun use, giving money to the organization so they can support immoral ideas that go contrary to the causes of Christ. The problem is not that you're struggling with that in culture. The problem comes when the church says it's okay to do that. When the members start accepting homosexuality and homosexual marriages as legitimate, when the church starts to do that, you have a a new problem, don't you? This is the theologically liberal church of our culture. It is. Where they elevate areas of leadership that the Bible says should not be elevated to leadership and they start relegating. You listen for this kind of thing. This issue in the scripture is just a first century cultural issue that we don't have to pay attention to today because we're now in a new, new era. As soon as you start doing that with the Bible, virtually anything goes. And, and you begin to see it fall. So, I mean, yes, we could enumerate the churches, but just look where you see a church that's accepting what the Bible calls immoral and they're trying to find a way to jettison the passages of scripture that call it immoral and relegate it to a first century moral system that doesn't exist today. You're finding a church like Thyatira. You're not rejecting what's false. You say, but, but are true Christians buying into this? How could true Christians buy into this? Are you kidding me? It's amazing what true Christians buy into, isn't it? It's amazing what we could get suckered into just because the culture is so profound and Christianity is so counter-cultural. You can begin to think, well, everybody else seems to think this is okay and the leaders are saying this is okay. So if the leaders are saying this is all right, that's how it goes. I wanna point out here, did you notice Jezebel did this to my bondservants? See the emphasis there? To my slaves, my bondservants. This is who she did it to. (laughs) Jesus takes that personally, doesn't he? What What does that mean? Matthew 18, this is is instructive. Usually when I say Matthew 18, you think of church discipline. Well, before you get to church discipline, you know what Jesus teaches about? Children, but not babies, not little children physically, but his children. Matthew 18, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child to himself and set before them. And said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then, listen to this, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child, not an actual child, but one who receives the gospel as a child, in a childlike way, in my name receives me. But whoever causes, listen to this, whoever causes one of these little ones, what little ones? Those who've received the gospel in a childlike manner. One, who causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble? It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Jesus cares about his children, doesn't he? These are my children who are being led astray. I think that's where Matthew 18, 15 comes in, church discipline. If you saw one of God's children walking astray, what should you do? Rescue them, pull them out of that. Don't let them go that way. Don't be the kind of people who advocate that the children stumble. Be the kind of person that advocates that the children are restored that's who he values. How is the church to deal with false teachers? Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7:15, who come to you in sheep's clothing and inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears fruit, but the bad tree bears good bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Who's he talking about? False teachers. You'll know them by their fruit. The next thing that Jesus says in Matthew 7 when he says you'll know them by their fruit, he says not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know who he highlights in that text? Church leaders. You see, church leaders, Right. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Who's he referring to? Leaders. And in your name we cast out demons, and in your name we perform many miracles. And I will declare to them, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I know your deeds, I know the truth. Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. I got 10 more passages to read on what the church should do with false teachers. I'll start with it next time. And I want to read them because I think we're in a place as a people and a culture that we're too hesitant to say no. We're too tolerant of what is false. Now, the problem is no one looks at what they believe and says, I know this is false. We always find a way to meld it with the truth. And it's difficult. But if you want to stem the flood that will sink the church you better keep in mind who Christ is first preserve the people who are true and get to the place where you reject what is false let's pray together Lord as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table to your table the remembrance of Christ. We want to turn our attention to think on what you have done to preserve us from error, what you have done to keep us from going astray. You've given your very life for that. And we thank you for it. And we pray Oh, Lord, we pray that you would keep our church faithful. Help us to recognize what's false and turn away from it. Help us to see those who are true and love them and preserve them. Give us grace, Lord, so that we would look at Christ and be motivated and driven by who he is among us. And Lord, we pray we'll never take for granted who you've made us to be as the church. And help us to celebrate that now in the Lord's table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to make their way forward. And one of our elders...